0: The history of our Earth is so different from what we can imagine. The Smithsonian, that if they found out about a large skeleton somewhere, was to go get it. I'm going to assume at least one person is right, because if one person's right, it busts the paradigm. It all goes back to the fallen
1: chariot. Welcome to the show, uh, Dr. Laura Sanger. You're an author. You wrote this book called The Roots of the Federal Reserve, Tracing the Nephilim from Noah to the U.S. Dollar. That's how I found you. The book is, I mean, we've been talking about this on our show, about how these Nephilim creatures were all about dominance, control, consuming all the resources. And it would make sense that you get into the Federal Reserve and and you just keep going back and back and back. So we'll let you tell us more about that. But uh, you have an MA in theology and a PhD in clinical psychology from S- Fuller Theological Seminary, uh, where you practice clinical psychology uh, for 15 years, specializing in chronic mental illness, th- addictions, personality disorders, etc. And we're, we're fascinated to dive in this topic. Thank you for coming on our show and being here. So maybe uh, just start us off with how, just a little backstory of how you kind of got to this place where you wrote this book, and and then we'll ask you what you th- your thoughts on Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I, I feel like my journey, probably everyone's journey into the Giants is unique and unusual. But for me, I'm, I'm the kind of person that just absolutely loves to learn. So I am after all sorts of topics, um, no matter kind of how fringe they might be. Um, and so I just absolutely love to research. Um, I, I've been involved in some level of research since 1989, Um You know, some of that was in the field of psychology, and some of that was, you know, with my master's in theology, but I really have never stopped researching or learning. And so, um, as I began to dive into the topic of the Federal Reserve, um, this was back, I think it was in 2015, I listened to this podcast. by Rob Skiba. I mean, you, you may have heard of him. Um, you know, he, he talks about the Nephilim quite a bit, but he had a guest on his show named Timothy Bentz and Timothy is an intercessor. And so what that means is he, he travels around the world. The Lord leads him to different places where um, there have been Canaanite altars that have been erected. And so through prayer, um, he, you know, is able to dismantle those Canaanite altars. And so, anyways, in this podcast, he was telling about a time where he was returning from an overseas trip. It had been a long trip away from the family, wanted to get home, but the Lord told him, I have a side trip for you. I want want you to go to Jekyll Island. And Jekyll Island, for those of you that don't know, is in Georgia, and it's uh, the birthplace of the Federal Reserve. And so as I was listening to this, um, you know, I had already started some of the research on the Federal Reserve. And so I was incredibly intrigued. And to make a long story short, he talked about um, his experience on Jekyll Island, particularly his interactions with the museum curator um, and he discovered that they have artifacts um, and a collection of different items that demonstrate that the Temicuan tribe of Native Americans that inhabited that region, they actually um, were extraordinarily tall. And also it appeared that they worshipped at an altar that resembled a Canaanite altar. And so in this podcast, he started talking about giants and Nephilim. And I felt like the Holy Spirit just kind of nudged me and said, I'm going to bring you back to this. And so sure enough, a couple years later, I'm researching for the book that I wrote and the Lord does in fact bring me back to delve deep into the Nephilim and the giants. And so that's a little bit of how I got um, involved in that. But I, I feel like the perspective i have on the giants um is a bit unique in that one of the areas of expertise that i have is in spiritual mapping um i'm not sure are you guys familiar at all with that term spiritual i've mapping? heard
1: you talk i've heard you talk about it but i don't know if our listeners
0: okay.
1: um, are familiar with that but, but you can describe it for us for, uh, for those who don't know
0: Okay, so spiritual mapping was coined by a man named George Otis Jr. Um, back in 1991. But essentially what it is, is it's, uh, it consists of gathering research on the physical, social, and spiritual pulse of a society. And so it, it involves doing research to dig into like what are the ancient roots of defilement on a land that affects the people that actually live on that land. And so there's different facets of spiritual mapping, um, three main parts to it. So the first part is actually doing the research. So like I said, digging into historical documents, looking at newspaper clippings, looking at the demographics of a region, that sort of thing. But then also there's what's called reconnaissance. And that is essentially like what Moses did when he sent the 12 spies into the land of Canaan or what Joshua did when he sent the two spies into Jericho. Um, So what we do is we send teams of people um, onto the land. Uh, So whatever it is we're researching or whatever prayer assignment we have, we'll actually physically go on the land. And we have um, people that are particularly gifted in what's called discernment. So, they can sense both physically and spiritually what is on the land and what's taken place on the land. So, um, it's tremendous. Uh, you know, some people would maybe reference that as people can feel the different energies on a land, whether that's negative or positive, low frequency, high frequency type stuff. Um, so then we, we take that reconnaissance and we pair it with what we've discovered in the research arm of it. And then we put together what's called a prayer brief. And what that does is that it targets people's prayers and it's called informed intercession. So um, the idea is you don't want to just pray random things and hope you hit your target. You want to know what it is the land is struggling with, what the people on the land are struggling with, what strongholds are there. And so it really equips us as intercessors to be able to go in and act as a mediator in that role of intercession and ask the Lord for forgiveness for the iniquitous acts that have taken place on the land. And so there's primarily four iniquities um, that can release a stronghold on the land. And that is bloodshed, broken covenant, sexual immorality, and idolatry. So, what we're able to do with the spiritual mapping aspect is, you know, identify what's there, what's happened on the land, ask the Lord for forgiveness, cleanse the land, break those curses that are on the land, and then release the full measure of blessings. And really the ultimate goal of spiritual mapping is to see regions, you know, cities, states, nations, whatever it is we're praying for, released so that they can walk in that full measure of blessing and reach their God intended purpose. And so for me, the perspective in learning about the giants, it's not just for curiosity's sake. It's, it's really to understand that there's a Nephilim agenda that began all the way back in the seed war in Genesis three, that has been carried out throughout history and is currently operating in our day and time. And so you know, it's defiled our monetary system and practically every institution we have in our country right now. And so learning about the giants was, like I said, it's not just because it's something I'm interested in. It was, it was, how do we understand what's busy happening behind the scenes that so many of us don't understand um, and to bring to light this Nephilim agenda.
1: Some things like when you're, when you're describing all that, my thought, my initial thought is a lot of people describe, you know, that they've been—they have a stronghold of of demonic activity from their grandparents all the way down, and like their grandkids are are dealing with issues. We interviewed a guy that had some some similar activity, Luke, where some things were manifesting and following them around when they moved from house to house, and these entities follow them. And is this also? Tim talked a lot about this on our interview with him about principalities, mm-hmm. and you know it. Is that what you're kind of t- describing? Like these entities can take over in a certain area.
0: Yes, most definitely, and and it's um, not only can they take over an area. So, um, for example, you have spiritual grids across the earth, essentially, and ley lines. Yes, ley lines, spiritual grids, portals, gateways, all of that, and so. Wow. So what happens is if you live in an area that has a stronghold um, and that has a lot of activity um, in the spiritual realm, it can impact you whether you know it or not. And so, for example, um, in Torino, Torino is known as the um, witchcraft center of the world. When I went there now, I, I don't have a super strong gift in discernment, but um, when I landed in Torino, it hit me immediately. I started feeling nauseous, dizzy, kind of this heavy weight. Um, And it took a lot to press through that. And We have um, friends that lived there that worked for the Olympics. And one of the reasons I went there is because of the spiritual mapping I do. When we hosted the Olympics in Salt Lake City, our team was um, instrumental in, in understanding the spirits that come with the Olympics and the effect it can have on those host cities. And so we organized a massive uh, prayer event. But anyway, so um, I was invited to Torino because they were hosting the next Winter Olympics, and I worked with some of the the church leaders in Torino. and um, it was incredibly intense. And so um, you know there, some of the church leaders were aware of the spiritual grid over their city. But, um, you know, the people living there may not understand the depth of it, but there can be accidents. So for example, the Torino football team or soccer, as we call it, I can't remember, it was like, I want to say back in the 50s or 60s, they crashed, their entire team died in a plane crash near the Basilica outside of Torino. And that's just an example when you live in a place where there's a stronghold over that area, you know, there could be increased suicides, domestic violence, substance abuse, um, unusual accidents, all sorts of stuff like that.
1: I mean, Luke, this reminds me of like a lot of what Roger brought up. He, ha- he lives on a serpent, on a serpent mound. And he came on talking about this portal on the back, in the back of his property and all this stuff's coming out. Cryptid creatures. He talked about these giant demonic crocodile things that were like, killing animals in his backyard and it it puzzled a lot of our listeners because he's talking about these portals and these ley lines and he uses uh divining rods to figure out what's there and since his episode laura i've been very curious about these portals how do they work what is this ley line grid i mean sounds like you've done a lot of study on that so i think that could help some of our listeners just to what are these ley lines and 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 I mean, how how do we know anything about them? You know, how do we even start to unpack that?
0: Well, so I'll I'll go back to my experience in Torino. So uh, in staying with the friends that we know that were working for the Olympics, um, she told me that they were having experiences on their property. Um, So witches were leaving fetishes. I don't know if you're familiar with what fetishes are, but they're objects that have curses attached to them and they can release those curses on the land. And they were finding different fetishes on their property. Um, Their children were getting injured in particular ways that had to do with fertility issues. And so they said that in one of their guest rooms, some of their guests that have come over the years, um, they would have specific dreams guests wouldn't necessarily know um, that this was happening, but it was happening so frequently that they're like, okay, the Lord's trying to show us something here. So when we came, I brought a team of youth with me because I've been in youth ministry for a number of years. And these one particular youth has an incredible gift of discernment. And so anyways, our friend didn't tell us necessarily where in there was a portal but she just wanted to confirm to see if we had any confirmation. And so, and the guest room is fairly large. So it would be the equivalent of like two and a half of our normal size bedroom. So we walked in and you could feel the presence, the the negative presence. And we walked right to where the portal is. And we said, it's right here. And she says, yes. Um, the Lord had us just pray and break off and cleanse that land and reverse the portal. Cause a portal is essentially, if you think about it, it's a, it's an opening between dimensions. And so I talk about different dimensions. Um, you know, I think about the spiritual realm, the spiritual realm, isn't in the natural realm. So it's a different dimension. So you think about um, you know, Jacob's ladder in scripture where he saw the angels ascending and descending, that can be a portal, but a portal can both be for angelic presence, but it can also be demonic if it's been defiled. And so we were able just to pray and break off those curses when it happened and reverse that. So it was then an opening for the presence of God and the angelic. So then the other day, a couple of days later on that trip, You know, these youth are away from home. They're young. They're like 14, 15, 16-year-olds. And I just needed to debrief with them, you know, take them for a walk. They're missing home, you know, like I was saying. And we thought we were just gonna go for this innocent walk in farmland below where our friends lived. And it turned out we were in the we were walking right in the midst of a ley line. And what I experienced there, I had never experienced. And I—I I, this was like 10 years into doing spiritual mapping all over different states, different countries. And I was walking on the land and I began to see and feel, I don't know how to describe it, other than energy or beings pass through me. And I, I liken it to, um, I'm a Star Wars fan i liken it to um when the millennium falcon goes into hyperdrive and you see all those stars racing at you well it was that only in reverse they were moving away and i could see it not necessarily with my physical eyes i could feel it with my physical body but i was seeing it with my spiritual eyes and so um i mentioned something There there's three youth with me i mentioned it to them and one of the other youth was couldn't see it, but was feeling the same thing. And so, long story short, the Lord had us um, pray there as well. And what we noticed was that there was a real foul stench as we were walking it. Um, it smelled like a, a huge pile of manure, um, but there weren't we couldn't see any cows around. It doesn't mean that there weren't, you know, earlier in the day or whatever, but it was a real strong stench. And um, after we prayed and broke off, like cut, severed that ley line and asked for the Lord to come in and bless the land, the smell actually changed to like this fresh um, pine scent. Um, just fresh air, and nothing in the landscape had changed. We had not moved, but we did something in the spiritual realm, and it it changed the actual huh. physical smell. So I share that just to say that this stuff is real, you know. But we don't we don't understand it much. And so what ley lines are, is you can think of them like highways or expressways. Um, they're they're passageways of transportation for beings in the spiritual realm, so not humans, but things that are not human. <laughs> is that like
1: Elohim? Is that the
2: word for that? Like, is
0: it could be, yes, Elohim or gods? Yes, um,
2: it's one of the things that we've that I've I've heard about recently, and and talked about actually with my pastor at one point was when you talk about these portals, is it the same idea as like a thin space, that, that, like the way that we that it's it's described like maybe in the Irish tradition or whatever, where the veil between the you know, between this realm and the spiritual realm is thin. And so you have is that the same thing as a portal? Is that when we're talking about those just semantics? Is that kind of I would the same think, idea? So
0: I'm not super familiar with the term thin space, although I have heard people talk about um, certain high holy days in like the satanic calendar. So for example, Halloween would be one, Sam Hain. And they talk about how the veil between life and death is really thin on those particular days um, so that they can kind of tap into the underworld or the spiritual realm. Um, I would say, so the difference would be portals are not tied to specific calendar dates or specific holidays. They can be established, whether it's You know, in the Old Testament, there's a lot of times where the followers of God would establish a memorial or a monument or build an altar of remembrance. You know, you think about Bethel being a place where there was that direct communion with the Lord that can be thought of as a portal. Portals aren't always bad. I think that's the point I want to get across is that, you know, there can be places where God has moved, like Azusa Street, for example, um, or other places where the Lord has just descended in his presence and it's, it's changed the actual land itself. The land remembers that experience and so carries it with it. And so when you step onto that land, you, you feel the, the blessing and the presence So that would be an example of a portal that has the blessing of the Lord and the imprint, you know, of the Lord. But then there's those negative portals that can be established, whether there's human sacrifice on the land or, you know, ritualistic sex acts. You know, all those iniquities that I talked about initially, those can establish not only a stronghold in the region, but a portal on that particular part of the land Where then there's, and it's like you're establishing an access point where the demonic can travel um, and establish Mm. kind of their plans and purposes. This reminds
1: me of a lot of the things that people talk about when they have, it all goes back to Bigfoot, but Bigfoot smells terrible. There's this terrible stench. People say they walk into like a sphere where it's like suddenly they have this crazy fear and, and then like they don't hear any sound. Um, A lot of people say Bigfoot protects these portals in these areas that are around them. And a lot of people go missing in the woods. And a lot of people come onto shows like ours trying to figure out the phenomenon of people. It sounds like people walk through these portals and they're never seen again. And they just disappear without a trace. There's a lot of guys in this space who are trying to do the science of that and say, look, there's thousands and thousands of missing cases in certain areas. Like on the top of Mount Shasta, there's supposedly some weird activity and other places on mountains where people just disappear. And I'm wondering if, like, the Bermuda Triangle, these boats are just sailing through these portals, never to be seen again. Like, there's so much there with these doorways. And we, we talked to Derek a little bit from Megalithic Marvels about some of these ancient megaliths that have doorways in rocks. And it looks like a portal. Like, that's like an actual doorway of to another dimension.
2: Well, it's a doorway to nowhere in the physical, and then it's just it's just a doorway and a stone. Um, Yeah, all wild stuff. How does this so... I know we we brought you on initially to talk about the Fed and the Federal Reserve, and, but one of the things, this all ties back to the Nephilim, and one of the things we'd want to talk about was the Nephilim agenda and how that plays out today. I know, Nate, we're also getting to asking her the question. Maybe we should start there. Well, that's maybe what we, I was going. That was what I was going you, with all that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I did, And now I'm just like... This is getting me sucked in. I'm fascinated. So maybe we should.
1: Well, it's great because it, it's, it's, it seems like guests come on our show in a timely manner. We we launched into this thing. We had no idea where it was going to go. And every guest raises more questions. And then someone comes on and answers a few of those questions or gives us more clues. So uh, forgive me, I, ju- I jumped right into the, the portals and the ley lines. I'm so, conf- I'm so interested in that right now in my mind. But what do you think about Bigfoot? Is it, you know, we just talked about it. Is it related to any of this stuff is it related to the nephilim some people said said on our show they're pre-adamites i think that's what tim alberino said they were like here first there's some wild theories we've heard on the show i don't know uh you might you know obviously you 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 said you prepared for this question so you tell us
0: (laughs) 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 i did um You know, Bigfoot for for me is not a topic that I've really delved deep into, but I would have to say, you know, the the journey I was on in writing the book that I wrote, I had paradigm shift midway through, and, um, you know, I wrote the book in what I call real time, so when I was writing chapter five, I had no idea how all the loose ends would tie together. Like I didn't know where we were going to end up. And I didn't even know how we were going to get there. And I say we because it was this journey with the Holy Spirit. But so in writing um, and doing a lot of research on the Nephilim and the Giants and how all this is tied together with the Federal Reserve, I um I had some serious paradigm shifts. And so I think prior to writing the book, I, I would say, no, I don't think Bigfoot exists. Um, but I would have to say, you know, I can only offer my opinion cause I really haven't looked into it, but I would say that, um, it wouldn't surprise me if Bigfoot exists because I think it could either be, you know, a chimera, or it could be a descendant of the Nephilim. And I think you mentioned that people have reported, um, a foul odor. And it actually, it reminds me of the giants on Solomon islands. Um, so I'm not sure if you're familiar, if other guests have talked about that. So no, this was for me, this was a discovery in the, in the research that, that I did that I was like, Oh my goodness, <laughs> it blew my mind. So I'll share a couple of things. So the Solomon islands, they are, Uh, essentially a sovereign state of islands east of Papua New Guinea. So that's where it's located. And um, there have been numerous encounters with giants on this island. And so um, the islanders know that giants live among them in the interior portions of the islands. And so one of the islands in particular is called Guadalcanal. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's one of
2: that's World War II. Okay. Yeah, I know about Guadalcanal. That there was, there was battles there oh, in World War okay.
0: II. And so it was, it, it's one of the larger islands, um, part of that, the Solomon Islands. And there's um, a lot of island folklore, but also eyewitness accounts of giant encounters. And so... You know, the, the islanders know that the giants live among them. And there's a an Australian man, his name is Marius Boron, and he um, moved to Guadalcanal uh, for work. You know, he was a pilot and an engineer, and he ended up marrying uh, one of the indigenous women on Guadalcanal. And after 15 years of living there, he began to compile the folklore and also the eyewitness accounts of all these giant encounters. And he put it together in a book called The Solomon Island Mysteries. And so that book is fascinating because it it gives a lot of information about what they experienced. So in some of the um, eyewitness accounts and, and with the folklore, What the islanders um, believe is that the giants have lived on their islands for several millennia, and they estimate the population of the giants to be in the thousands, um, which is remarkable to me. And so um, the giants have this elaborate cave system underneath kind of this mountainous rainforest area on Guadalcanal. And the main um, access point to the cave system is Mount Tatuva. And that's where the islanders have witnessed giants coming and going um, through that cave system. And there's a well-known story. Um, this you know, really is shocking that it, it happened in the 20th and 21st century. Um, so there's a, a well-known story of a woman named Mango. And I should say before telling her story that um, what, what the islanders have experienced is they have been terrorized by the giants for years and years. So they, they are afraid of them for, you know, valid yeah. reasons. And so many of them have been abducted. They've been consumed as meals. These giants are cannibals. And so, anyways, back to Mango, she was abducted. And after 25 years of being missing, you know, they thought she was dead and long gone. She was found and she was pregnant and frothing at the mouth. And she gave birth to what they call a half caste boy or a hybrid. And that hybrid lived for five years before Mango's brother killed the hybrid. And then Mango herself, she died in the year 2000. And it was after years and years of mental instability, because she essentially lived in the cave system with the giants for 25 years. And so that kind of a story, you think, okay, is this real? Can this really be going on on Earth right now on Earth right now? So, in this book um, that I mentioned, um, he has encounters um, documented of some of the government officials from Guadalcanal. So, for, ex- well, excuse me, from the Solomon Islands. So, the first one is the third prime minister of the Solomon Islands, and his name is Ezekiel Alabua. And he tells of a time in his childhood where his father brought him to one of the burial sites of the giants. Uh, among the cave system. And he saw a skeleton 15 feet um, is what he estimated it to be. Then more recently, um, so the Guadalcanal premier, I don't know if it's the current premier. So a premier would be like one of our governors of a state Um, So the premier of Guadalcanal and then also the finance minister, they um, took a trip up to one of the mountains because the the islands are rich in precious metals, particularly gold. And so they were going up to one of the mines and they were in a four wheel drive truck and it had just rained. And so on the mountainous road, they actually went off the road, um, off the ledge or edge, I should say and they got stuck in the mud. And so they had to climb out of their truck, walk to the nearest village, gather about 30 other men to be able to get this truck up back onto the road. When they got back to the truck, they saw two 15 foot giants that had lifted the truck from off the edge of the road onto the road. And you can imagine, I mean, these these men just instinctively screamed and ran the other way. And after about 30 minutes, um, just a few of them were brave enough to go back to where the truck was. The giants were gone, but um, what the, the premier and the, the finance minister reported is that because it was muddy and wet, um, the footprints of the giants were still in the mud and they estimated them to be between three and four feet um, in size. And so, You know, I find these stories coming from the Solomon Islands so incredibly valuable to the discussion of the existence of giants because here we have in the 21st century and 20th century stories of giants roaming the earth and it really is like this bridge between the giants of antiquity and the giants in the 21st century and so that's why I think it's so important that we understand that the Nephilim and the offspring of the Nephilim are still roaming the earth, terrorizing those they come in contact with, and that they have an agenda, and we need to understand what that agenda is. So anyways, in thinking about Bigfoot, you know, oh, I forgot one important thing that um, Marius Boron, um described in his book, and I'll just read it, it's a, a quick quote, but what he does is he describes So there's three types of giants, and um, in describing one of the types of giants, it really was consistent with what I had already found about the Nephilim and their giant offspring. So here's what he says. He says, these giants have long black, brown, or reddish hair, bulging red eyeballs, a flat nose, wide gaped mouth, and an unmistakable odor. And so what the, what the villagers and the coastal people would do is when they, when the winds would blow and they would smell that odor, that's when they knew they were in danger and they'd take cover. Wow! So that is what connects for me, like are some of those giants considered what we would think Bigfoot is. I don't know, but it's it, some interesting connections.
2: <laughs> sounds very parallel. It sounds a lot like some of the Bigfoot experiences, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, it sounds exactly like them. I, I think we should just give our show to you, Laura. You're, it's yours now. You can be, you can host the show because you've got. I mean, we just that one Kandahar giant story is like of those those military guys in Afghanistan shooting that one giant. It's like everyone knows about this story.
2: Heard? And yeah, we interviewed Tim, wild. and Tim
1: interviewed the pilot who supposedly flew this one giant out. You're talking about an island inhabited by giants today? One of our first guests talk about mountain giants in North America coming out of the ground in places like Canada. Um, they'll, they'll still, they're still underground in like these cave systems that you're describing. I think just the thought of one giant existing still, we're just chasing down some of those legends, but it sounds like we need to get a plane ticket, Luke, and fly out to this island.
2: Yeah. Let's do it. Let's just well, not get, let's not get close to the cave system, Nate. Well, you got red hair. Maybe they're going to know you're friendly. <laughs> exactly. Maybe I can slip in and you wear your giant. You wear your giant's hoodie you're wearing right now and be like, "Hey, I'm <laughs>
1: playing for the home team, guys. Hey guys, yeah."
2: Hey. <laughs>
1: but here's something that might be interesting. A lot of people are like, "There's no way." They're skeptical. They listen to the show. They come here for B- bigfoot content. And we we throw these things at them. But I've heard that Papua New Guinea has the most concentrated area on the earth with more more languages than anywhere else in the world so people can't tell their stories to each other as well because you go a little bit around the island it's another language another language there's all these languages there so things can kind of stay hidden on those islands because people describe seeing believe it or not pterodactyls flying around those islands at night that glow in the dark and attack people and i've seen a couple shows on this and, and <laughs> Papua new guinea is a strange place <laughs> But he said, he said that islanders can't communicate as easy because there's so many languages spoken there. I don't know. Well, is weird. that why? Is that why? Because I mean, imagine if that stuff happened here, you could be like, oh, it's going on in such and such, and the, you know, we all speak the same language on this continent, so it's a little easier for information to to, to travel around. But maybe some of these legends can stay hidden because of barriers like that. Simple, simple awesome. things. Yeah. I don't
2: know, Laura. I want to get into this Nephilim agenda. You you talked about it briefly there. I know it's something we wanted to talk about. And how it impacts today? Obviously, like if we're talking about giants that that exist in the here and now, there's definitely a direct connection, as you pointed out, back to the giants of antiquity, to what we consider to be the Nephilim, Genesis six, and 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 all that. Um, I know you wrote out your book about a lot of of tracing the Nephilim to to the Fed and and all this. So can you t- can you unwrap a little bit of that for us?
0: Absolutely, yeah. So the Nephilim agenda. Um it, really, it was unleashed during the days of no, which probably isn't any surprise, um, given how much you guys have dug into that. But um, the agenda is really to defile the human genome um, by propagating the hybrid race. And so the purpose of it is really to stage a coup d'etat on God Almighty. And um, what I mean by that, it, it really takes kind of... Um, going back a little bit to understanding the origins of the seed war or the origins of the Nephilim agenda. And that's in the seed war. So um, that familiar passage in Genesis three, you know, where um, the Lord tells the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And so as a result of the fall, God declared um, war between the seed of Eve, which is humanity and the seed of Satan. And so um, one day, Eve's seed would crush Satan. And so really, this is like the prophetic declaration of the coming Messiah. So Satan's strategy um, was to contaminate the seed of the woman, so that, you know, that would alter the genetic code of humans so that the Messiah would not be able to be born. And this is really where um, I think the fallen sons of God become integral in Satan's strategy. So when they choose to leave um, their heavenly abode and invade the earth realm and mate with the daughters of men, they are defiling the human genome through the birth of the Nephilim, which is a hybrid race. And so the Nephilim are the seed of Satan. They're created in his image. And so if we think about, um, you know, that in the book of Enoch, we know that story well of, of how the 200 watchers descended on Mount Hermon. Well, one of the things that the Lord had me do throughout the book was what I kind of likened to performing an archaeological dig on language. Or another way to think about it is like looking through the telescope of vocabulary to reconstruct ancient events. And so what I mean by that is digging into the etymological roots of words. So for example, if we think about Mount Hermon, the Hebrew word for Hermon is Hermon. But then, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing any of these right. So you'll just, we'll just have to grace for what we're we're not
2: experts either, Laura. So we'll just roll with whatever you got.
0: Um, So that word Hermon, it comes from the root word Haram. And Haram means to um, completely destroy, exterminate, and to devote for destruction. And so it's that term that denotes Yahweh's utter contempt for particular um, acts of sin, or also the mixing of species, so that the hybrid race and what they did to defile the human genome. And so when God commands Haram in scripture, he's really um, calling for punishment through total annihilation. And most times that has to do with the mixing of species. And so if we think about one example in the Bible where it talks about where God commanded Haram is when he asked Saul to completely annihilate the Amalekites. Now the Amalekites, they were these vicious plunders and they actually were um, the first foe to attack Israel when Israel exited Egypt. And we know from the Exodus story, you know, Egypt had handed over their wealth to the Israelites. They leave with that wealth, and that catches the eye of the Amalekites. So the Amalekites wanted the plunder for themselves. So what they did, their strategy was they separated um, those that straggled in the back of the caravan. Um, and they attacked them. So that would have been the frail, the weak, the elderly, the sick, you know, children, mothers, nursing mothers, the Amalekites attacked those um, that were in the back of the caravan. And so this could have been, you know, the only reason that God commanded her on that total annihilation. But I don't think it is because if we, um, if we dig a little deeper and we consider okay now where did the amalekites come from and uh, of course there's different perspectives on this um different biblical scholars look you know consider different things but amalek is a grandson of esau and i'll tie all of this together because it begins to become really important in how you can trace the nephilim so esau had a son named Iliaphaz. And Iliaphaz had a Horite concubine named Timnah. Now the Horites are listed in Genesis 14 among a list of tribes of giants, but it's not thought that the Horites themselves were a tribe of giants, but more that they intermingled or interbred with the giants. And so it's reasonable to think that Timnah, the Horite mother of Amalek, passed on potentially Nephilim genes to Amalek. Um, But not only may he have had Nephilim genes, he also inherited the extreme hatred that Esau had towards Jacob. And so as the generations progressed, the strife between Esau and Jacob's descendants intensified. And so That's kind of a little bit of the backdrop of who the Amalekites are. So now back to why would God ask or command, not ask, command Saul to haram the Amalekites? And probably it was, you know, for two reasons. One is they were merciless in their attack on the burgeoning nation of Israel, but also because they interbred with the giants. And so they were furthering the Nephilim seed and defiling the human genome. So back to Saul. So during Saul's day, Agag was king of the Amalekites. So when when Saul was commanded to Haram, the Amalekites, um, he was was told he had to annihilate everyone, completely destroy everyone. But Saul did not walk in the fear of the Lord. And instead, he gave in to his whims and fancies um, and preserved King Agag. And what's really interesting is, so the... The Jewish historian Josephus, um, he says this about uh, King Ag, or excuse me, about Saul. He says, Saul also took Agag, the enemy's king captive, the beauty and tallness of whose body he admired so much that he thought him worthy of preservation, giving way to human passions. He preferred the fine appearance of the enemy to the memory of what God had sent him about. So here we have Saul finding agag attractive because of the tallness and beauty of his body and so he instead of walking in the fear of the lord he chooses to preserve someone with a defiled human genome so on that particular in that particular battle in the seed war Saul handed the victory over to the enemy, to Satan, because what he did on that day, and instead of walking in the fear of the Lord, he aligned himself with the seed of Satan. And I think that's precisely why Saul lost his kingship was because of that choice of aligning with the seed of Satan. And so if we think about, um, you know, Satan's strategy, Uh, along the way has been to defile the human genome so that the Messiah couldn't be born. Well, we know he utterly failed at that, and Jesus won the seed war. So the Nephilim has had to slightly alter their agenda. So in the common era, the agenda still is to defile the human genome, but it's to destroy as many Jesus followers as possible, while also enslaving the masses through control, manipulation, and domination. And so the Nephilim agenda is essentially the same as the globalist agenda, and that is total domination of humanity. It's to usher in a new world order. And we actually, in history, we see this. This is the same agenda that Hitler operated under when he tried to create a perfect Aryan race to supplant humanity. And so it's part of that uh, defiling the human genome. Now you might, well, this is a fringe podcast anyway. So I'm going to talk briefly about transhumanism, um, you know, creating humans 2.0. And um, what's interesting is while, you know, this could be thought of on the fringe, uh, but back in, I think it was late, it was either late November or early December. So the Director of National Intelligence, John Ratcliffe, who you know served under President Trump, he wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. And then um, in early December, Maria Bartiroma had him on Sunday Morning Futures. And he was talking about um, the threat that China poses to our nation. And he was talking about how China's military has 2 million soldiers in it. Um, But what China is doing, the People's Republic of China, they're using gene editing to strengthen their soldiers. So they're essentially altering the genetic code of their soldiers to create what's called super soldiers or humans 2.0. And so these soldiers are known to be able to withstand harsher circumstances, they can last longer in battle um, than pure humans. And so when I heard that, I mean, I had done all this research for the book. And when I heard him say this, I'm like, this is no longer fringe. He just brought it right into the mainstream narrative. Not many people caught it. And, you know, it's understandable. We have to you know, expose this truth um, in layers so that more and more people can understand. But it is happening right here, right now. And that's just that's just one way that the Nephilim agenda is impacting us. Um, and so when I think about, you know, going back to the days of Noah, God in his omniscience, he knew that the Nephilim agenda would threaten humanity's existence all the way until the last days, the, the end of time. And so, you know, I believe, um, I know there's all sorts of different perspectives on the flood, but I believe the flood was universal. And I also believe that God was successful in annihilating the Nephilim. But what he, what he um, is consistent in is allowing free will in humanity. And so that free will, I believe, opened the door to the Nephilim offspring emerging after the flood.
2: This is not the first time we talked about this on the show. And one of the things we talked about with Tim Alberino specifically is the manipulation of the genetic code in a way that removes those things that make us human. And, and in so, the darkness and Satan, they can usurp the throne. We've been given dominion here in this, in this planet. So this is not a new idea for our show. I just want to point that out. This is something that we've talked about, and it does show up in the news. We talk about chips being implanted in people's heads for upgrades. Elon Musk is doing it with, with pigs right now. There's a lot, There's a thought process in, in this space that talks about the idea that there's certain things in our genome that uniquely make us human. And once we remove that, we've removed that thing that gives us the birthright to dominion here as the Bible says, we'll judge angels on earth. We have dominion here, but yeah, back to, so is it, do they do this Mount Hermon event again? Or do you think that it comes through the line of ham? Like, like some people theorize, um, there was some, there was some Nephilim DNA on the more on the ark itself.
0: Yeah. i I am fascinated by this particular question. It's like the age-old question. How were there giants on the earth after the flood if God was successful in getting rid of the Nephilim? And so, like you said, there's, there's two primary theories. There's the multiple incursion theory and then the single incursion theory. And I, I think um, you know there, to have an incursion the same magnitude of Genesis 6, I don't think can be substantiated but that doesn't mean there weren't other incursions that happened. Um, You know, if we consider the Mesopotamian culture with their sacred marriage practices and the ritualistic um, sex practices that they had between the divine and the priest or priestesses, that can be an example of multiple incursions. Um, But what I find fascinating is considering the single incursion theory and So like you mentioned, um, epigenetics, I really feel like this is the key that unlocks the understanding of, of single incursion. And so, um, for those of your listeners that aren't too familiar with epigenetics, it essentially is, you know, how, um, our thoughts and behaviors and lifestyle choices impact our body, soul and spirit. And it's not just how they impact us. It also impacts future generations. And so the, the prefix epi means on top of. And so epigenetics is a set of instructions that sits on top of the genome. And so another important aspect of this is to understand that there's something called epigenetic markers, and you can think of them like light switches. You know, you can turn on or off this marker, and that controls kind of the expression of that particular gene. So As I mentioned, there's there's this transgenerational component, and this I believe really unlocks understanding in this area. So, there's some fascinating research. Um, You know, I mentioned I love to learn, I love to research, so I can just get geeked out on this pathway of understanding this transgenerational component. But I'll share one interesting um, research that was done by a group of Swedish researchers back in 2006, and the lead researcher's name's Pembry. Um, But what they did is they looked at um, eating and lifestyle choices of prepubescent boys. And what they found is that it can affect their progeny up to two generations. So what do I mean by that? So in looking at this research, what they found is that boys around the age of 10, if they overate and or smoked, their children and grandchildren had significantly shorter lifespans. So um, in building on that concept, there's an incredible book by Dr. Carolyn Leaf called Switch on Your Brain. And it's really good in helping understand epigenetics and how this can affect our generations. And, And she talks about how the sins of the parents create a predisposition in the children. So not a destiny, but a predisposition. And that our choices, which are epigenetic signals, um, alter the expression of genes, which are those epigenetic markers. And that can be passed on to our children and grandchildren. So essentially predisposing them before they're even conceived, which is mind-blowing to me. Wow. Um, And so our bad choices can become their bad predispositions. And so with that as a backdrop, then when we consider um, Genesis six, nine, it says, and these are the origins of Noah. Noah was a just man being perfect in his generation. Noah was well-pleasing to God. So, being perfect in his generation um, or his genealogy means that his genome was not defiled by the Nephilim. So he was hundred percent human as were his wife and sons. Now here's where I think, you know, I tie in um, Ham's wife, potentially having the Nephilim gene, as you mentioned, Luke. So um, I go into more in depth in this, in my book in chapter eight, but You know, if we think about Ham's um, pattern of sexual perversion in his life, um, it would be reasonable to conclude that maybe he chose a wife that had Nephilim genes in her, but had an epigenetic marker that turned off that gene. So you don't see the phenotype of the Nephilim in Ham's wife, but she, she carries that dormant gene within her, but the epigenetic marker is turned off. But a curse on her bloodline could flip the switch and turn that gene on. And so with, um, and we, I, I believe we see that in the life of Nimrod. And so Ham's um, choices became Nimrod's bad predispositions, which he acted upon. Let me kind of connect the dots a little bit more first. So, if we think about then, um, there's a passage in Genesis 10:8, and if we read it in the English, you know, it's one of those you can just pass over and go, "Huh? Well, that how that doesn't really make a lot of sense," but not really understand what's there. And Genesis 10:8 says, "Cush begot Nimrod; he began to be a mighty one on the earth." Now, here's where. Um, You know, as I was digging into the etymology of the words, things just really began to unlock um, for me here. So, first of all, if we think about Nimrod's name in the Hebrew, it means rebellion. And rebellion is a hallmark trait of the Nephilim. um, But also that phrase, he began. In the Hebrew, it's halal. And that means... um, to profane, defile, or make oneself, or excuse me, pollute oneself through ritual or sexual means. So I'm going to come back to that in a minute because that is a really important clue. And then if we look at the Hebrew word for mighty men or mighty one in that passage, it's the term gibberer, which means mighty, strong, valiant, champion, giant, chief, tyrant, and also impetuous soldier or hunter. And it comes from the root word gabar. And that means to prevail, to be strong, to show oneself mighty, but also to um, act proudly toward God. And so here we have, um, you know, if we think about the word gibber, the first mention of gibber is in Genesis 6, 4, when it talks about the Nephilim and the giants. And so If you put all that together, we think about Nimrod, and Nimrod, he was not born with the phenotype of the Nephilim, but he defiled himself, he defiled his genome through those ritualistic sex acts. Now, again, if we would have just read over that passage without digging into the meaning of the Hebrew words, Um, we would have completely missed it. And that's where I think the English translations leave us wanting because we would never have picked up that clue that what Nimrod was engaged in was these ritualistic sex practices um, and that could defile his human genome. So then we have, so Nimrod's grandfather, Ham through his iniquity of disrespectfully gazing upon Noah's nakedness. Now, some people believe it's even more than just gazing upon, but irregardless, it was a sexual perversion. It was evidence that there was sexual perversion there. So that created a predisposition for sexual perversion in his children and grandchildren. And so we see that emerge in the life of Nimrod. So then Ham's iniquity and Noah's curse in conjunction with um, what I'm suggesting is that Ham's wife had that Nephilim gene that was turned off. Those things all together could set the stage for the Nephilim traits to emerge after the flood. And so we see that um, that free will uh, that I mentioned earlier about you know after the flood God wiped out the Nephilim, but humanity still had free will, and through that free will and epigenetics, that could explain how the Nephilim and the offspring of the Nephilim emerged after the flood. And I believe that explains how Nimrod could begin to be or began to be a giant.
2: I want to ask one thing about this. And I think this, first off, before I, I said the Tower of Babel before the flood, I was, I was mixed up there. It's after the flood. That's where Nimrod is. I'll correct myself there. Secondly, the Bible talks about the sins of the father being passed on. This is very, I never thought about it in this, in a very genetic way that's possible. Like not, not just, you know, because we we talked about with some paranormal stuff in some other episodes about how things happen in your family, up the family tree, and that causes things to happen down the family tree, whether it be weird spiritual stuff that that ends up in a home or follows you. And like you've talked about in the very beginning about the land, but very literally here, we're talking about the sins of the father turning on or uh, having the ability to turn on genetic code that existed in the in the sequence that would have, you know, then now brought the giants back. When we see the giants again after this, obviously, we see them in David and Goliath and Goliath's brothers, Og. The giants do make a, uh, make a return. It's just fascinating to me because I never thought about that. I always thought about sins of the father being that, you know, alcoholism or these things that you see run in families, right? That are, that, I mean, this makes a ton of sense. Anyway, I, I, this just was a light on for me. Interesting. I mean, just interesting. I, I love, I love this so far.
1: Well, I, it's funny because a couple of years ago, I went to get counseling and the doctor was for health issues. And the doctor was talking about how a trauma in your, in your grandparents' life can be written in the genetics and it can cause health issues in your own life years later. And I, for, we did several sessions because I had, I had some health issues I couldn't get to the bottom of. I was seeing alternate doctors and that was one of, one of my doctors recommended me go to him. And we did like five sessions and he was talking about that. Mm. And it took me like four or five sessions with this doctor to, to listen to what he had to say that you can turn off and on genes issues and you have to heal from trauma sometimes to begin to heal physically because if you have been messed up in your DNA, your body is in a state of of fight or flight and it can't heal. And I was like, dude, you're crazy, man. Like I thought I was just wasting my time and energy because I thought clearly something's wrong with my body, but he was trying to get me to think about the ability for us to turn on, turn off genetic, uh, like you were saying, um, we have these genetic, um,
0: the epigenetic markers. Y-
1: yeah. But we can control them too. We can, we can decide whether we, turn w- how, you know, and uh, neuroplasticity and all these different topics to get into this. But, but it took me a while that for my mind to open up to that, but I'm, I'm tracking with you hundred percent that I think a lot of people, when they listen to the show, they think, "Well, how, you know, obviously he would know if she was a giant." And it's like, no, I mean, it could have been a dormant gene that was hiding, and he had no idea. But then Richard Sorensen said on our episode with him, we had him on a couple of days ago. He was talking about the psychosis of giants, mm-hmm. and we talked about where the giants genetically psychic uh, or psycho- psychotic. But then he talked about this weird sex act that happened with Noah and his sons when he, after they got out of the ark, mm-hmm. and he said that. He, he got into more detail about it he thinks something physically happened where they they mess with him and mm-hmm. it sounds kind of like what you're talking about that something was turned back on again and then a couple of generations down the line then it really grew into something nasty where he became a giant and but but I also think you know i I think when it comes to this topic I think all the above is my thought like could some of them have been hiding underground and somehow like most of them got exterminated but a few somehow survived or could there have been some weird genetic, does it have to be just one? Can it, can, it, can all of these things be a part of what happened?
0: Yeah, I think it's both and. And so let me describe a little bit more about Nimrod and because I think he's an example of both multiple incursion and single incursion. And so, um, and also just back to what you were saying about when you went to get counseling for the health reasons, um, I think this is where I want to bring hope to us all in that once we understand this um, and understand how important our choices are, um, mm. not only for our future generations. So I don't have grandchildren yet, but the choices I'm making in my life now are going to impact my grandchildren, not just because I've shaped my my children and, and how they might parent but literally, physically, um, it's, it can shape my grandchildren. And so um, likewise, when we think about that generational iniquity that may be in our bloodline, it go, kind of going back, Luke, to what you were saying about we have dominion authority. We have authority to break off those curses, to cut that, that flow of junk that comes through our bloodline. And when we understand the importance of epigenetics, to me, it's, it's beautiful how it all comes together because here we have spiritual principles in scripture about blessings and curses. You know, blessings go for a thousand generations and, and the, the sins of the fathers, like you were saying, Luke, three and four generations. So we know that there's that spiritual truth of, of this transgenerational component to blessing and curses. Um, but then you bring in the epigenetics and that's kind of the scientific realm of it. And then of course, being a psychologist, I love the psychological aspect of it. And so it really all comes together, but to understand that, that this could be one of the ways that the giants emerged is completely fascinating to me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: So anyways, back to the life of Nimrod. So Um, you know, one of the things that I did in my book was, um, provide, you know, through doing the research, what are the physical and behavioral characteristics of the Nephilim and their giant offspring? And some of it began here as I was looking at Nimrod. Um, And so, you know, through, um, different resources, we can learn that Nimrod had this desire for control and manipulation. He wanted to dominate others. And so what he did is he suppressed his subjects using fear and intimidation. And those are clearly Nephilim traits. And Nimrod um, was Satan's first attempt at raising up a type of antichrist. And so when you think about that and you think about the magnitude of Ham's choice led to the open door for Satan to raise up the first type of antichrist, And a lot of scholars would agree that Nimrod was the first world leader in human history. And so he was the first globalist, so to speak. Hmm. And so here we have Nimrod, you know, he's filled with his pride and arrogance. He thinks that he can lead the building of the Tower of Babel. That would be something that would outmaneuver the almighty God. And it really was this um, pride of life that was rising up. And so if you think about um, the term Babel in the Akkadian language means gate of the gods, but it's also a play on the Hebrew word that means confusion. And so I started to think, okay, you know, why, why were they building this tower of Babel? And you know, we can look at scripture and scripture talks about um, so that they can make a name for themselves. And when you look at, again, going back to the Hebrew meaning of that phrase, it really is about them creating a monument or a memorial um, so that it would draw fame and glory to them. They, they wanted um, to be known by subsequent generations and to be revered. And, and again, there's that pride of life. And so um, when you think about it, the Gibberer, so the Nephilim, they're known as the men of renown And so in their offspring is this desire to be known as men of renown. And so you see that in Nimrod as he's building this Tower of Babel. He wanted to have that fame and glory be known as a man of renown, if that makes sense. And so um, that, I think, is one reason. But there's um, another reason. I can't remember if you had these guys on your podcast before, but um, Thomas Horn and Chris Putnam, they wrote a book called On the Path of the Immortals. And they suggest in their book that the Tower of Babel is actually a stargate. Um, so kind of going back to what we were talking before about the portals and different dimensions and gateways. So they suggest that it's a stargate um, that was inspired by the forbidden knowledge that was given by the sons of God, which is fascinating to me. And so you know, if we think about Nimrod as he began to be a mighty one or gibber or a giant, that's a hybrid, right? And so um, within Nimrod is that unlocking of part of the divine because the Nephilim, their fathers were 100% divine and the mother was, you know, human. And then the subsequent generations of offspring have that divine part within him and so is that why nimrod could discern where a portal or a gateway to the other dimensions were and that's what he was building the tower of babel as kind of this this temple or this place so that there could be that sexual union between the divine and the human and so that could be an example of how nimrod both opened the door for multiple incursions, but also became a giant through a single incursion epigenetic theory. That's,
2: hmm. inter- that's interesting because I know that, that they consider that to be the first ziggurat, right? And the ziggurat was meant to be built on top of a temple as a stairway, or you could even say a gateway for the gods. So for our listeners that aren't completely up to speed with the Fed, like how do you tie this up with the fed then? if if I mean, obviously, I know that it has to do with control, right? You said something interesting about how the agenda, the satanic agenda, had to do with with fear, using fear and oppression to control. I mean, all you could do was, I mean, this is this is what's going on right now in in our in America, twenty 2020, twenty, twenty twenty one. But how's that? Yeah, how does that play into the Fed then? If we're looking at a nephilim agenda, and we're looking at how it came back, this is a great. I mean. We talked about the beginning. Very well prepared. This is such a great story arc. I love it. Um, and how do how do we how do we connect it to what what happened? Um, Jekyll Island and the rest of, of the Fed stuff for our listeners that aren't you know that may be not familiar, and also me included. Uh, curious, yeah. Nate might know. Nate's Nate's hip with all these all the things that. Not, Nate, without. what
0: do you know?
1: What do I know? I don't know anything. <laughs> all I know is I'm in Narnia and I'm fascinated because. I mean, uh, like what, like Luke was saying, like the, it's one story, like what you're describing is one full story. And like a lot of cryptic podcasts and cryptid shows, it's like to them, it's, it's just all these random things happening, like aliens coming down and spaceships flying across and Bigfoot coming out of the woods and someone sees a giant and there is no whole art arching story that explains all of it. And it all fits inside. That's what I like, love what we're trying to do is we're trying to use. Bigfoot is the gateway drug to see the weird Narnia story that goes all the way back. And now we have the remnant with the Fed being here today, but its roots tie all the way back to this domination, trying to enslave humans. So Luke and I were both trying to set up the same question kind of thing, but that's where I'm at.
2: Well done, sir.
0: You were better than me. Yeah. So how on earth does this all tie together to the Federal Reserve? And, you know, the... The way I wrote the book is like an investigative journey where we're discovering things along the way. And um, it, as I mentioned before, I, I wrote it as in real time. So I was just as much on this investigative journey as the readers are as they read it. And there were times, like literally every day, I, I was like, okay, Lord, where are we going today? What are you going to show me? How does this even tie together? And he, he took me on these twists and turns that I had no idea I was going to go down and write about. And um, so I probably need um, to maybe build a little bit of a foundation to connect the giants of old to um, what we see now with the Nephilim agenda. And how I did that was um, in several ways. So the first way is um, as I mentioned with Nimrod um, I I was able to begin to pull like, what are these physical traits and behavioral characteristics of the Nephilim and their giant offspring? So I didn't just look at Nimrod, but I looked at Esau and um, you know, what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. I looked at Goliath, you know, all these different characters and began compiling, you know, as a psychologist, I'm fascinated by this stuff. Like what are the behavioral characteristics? And so In chapter 13 of my book, I coined the term Nephilim host. And what I mean by a Nephilim host is somebody who partners with the spiritual forces of darkness to carry out the Nephilim agenda. And so I believe there are Nephilim hosts, in addition to like the giants of Solomon Islands, I believe there are Nephilim hosts in and among us, potentially even running some of our institutions. Um, that are carrying out the Nephilim agenda. But, but before we can get to that point of connecting the dots, we have to know like what, what characteristics are we looking for that would classify someone as a Nephilim host? Because you know, given the ethereal nature of the Nephilim, I felt like it was really important to um, develop this set of criteria by which you could classify someone as a Nephilim host. And so Um, I drew upon the concepts in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders. So that's what we use as psychologists and psychiatrists will use or social workers when they are um, diagnosing someone with a mental disorder. But I have to give a disclaimer because I'm by no means suggesting that what I came up with in Chapter 13 can be used to determine a clinical diagnosis and that's why i refer to it as proposed criteria for classification as a nephilim host because so much more research would need to be done to confirm that in fact these cluster of traits do adequately identify nephilim host
2: right so So, it's a hypothesis so you're i mean yeah yeah
0: um so I want to maybe run through these real quickly, um, these traits and physical traits and behavioral characteristics. And as I do, you and your listeners can begin to think of maybe world leaders or, and I don't don't want to label anyone, but you can just think about some of these characteristics that maybe you've seen evident or coming to the surface or being exposed specifically in the last, you know, since 2020. Um, So there's two criterion. Criterion A is the physical traits and criterion B are the behavioral characteristics. So the four physical traits, um, well, I should say this before getting into it. So what I propose is that you have to have at least three physical traits or three behavioral characteristics in order to be classified as a Nephilim host. However, if you don't have any physical traits, then you need to have at least five behavioral characteristics. Okay. So that's kind of the backdrop. So the physical traits are being excessively tall, and you would want to rule out gigantism, um, extraordinarily strong, polydactyly, which is having six fingers and or six toes, and then don't get upset with me, Nate, but red hair. (laughs) (laughs) Something's
2: wrong with me. I knew it. Oh, buddy.
0: My grandmother, who is my spiritual mentor, she had red hair. And I am by no means suggesting that you guys are Nephilim. Hey,
2: we're fiery. We're a fiery bunch. (laughs) It's it's in the literature, though. We know that there was a lot of red-haired giants.
0: Yes, exactly. And so you know, what was interesting in doing my investigation, um, the color red became a bit of a calling card for the Nephilim and the Nephilim agenda. And so red was really symbolic for kind of, if you think about their fingerprints on different things throughout history. And so it really begins with Esau. And if we have time, I'll explain um, the significance of between the transformation when Esau became Edom because that right there is the, is, I always get my cliches wrong, Lynchpin Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Sounds to tie right. the ancient giants to the Federal Reserve. Does that make sense? That sounds right. Yeah, well, yeah. It's so yeah. funny.
2: My, my wife is is the absolute worst at, at, at sayings and cliches, so she'd be proud to because she always says it wrong, bald as a bat, or if everyone wants to say bald as a bat, and I'm like, that doesn't make
0: it. sense. <laughs> it's never laughing at me, because I butcher cliche, so I just, oh, yeah. I was making sense.
2: It's, um, it's
1: all good.
0: So, yeah, as you mentioned, there's all sorts of um things through historical documents that we can see, where there's this connection between red hair and the giant. So, you know, that starts with the Edomites, but, You know, as we see in the elongated skulls of Paracas, Peru, or the red-haired cannibals that terrorize the northern Paiute tribes in Nevada. There's the Tarim Basin mummies in China, the Celts, the Scythians, the Khazarians, And so um, it really emerged as this trait that can be seen in and linked to other Nephilim traits. And so that's why I include it. I don't want to offend anyone with red hair. Oh no,
1: no one's no one's offended.
0: Really, it would be foolish to, you know, draw conclusions based on one episode. Well,
1: Luke Luke has all the other character traits, so (laughs)
2: except for the six fingers.
0: Yeah,
2: (laughs) I used to have a bunch of red in my beard too. It's kind of gone all gone by the way. He's like six
1: six five, big strong guy. So, are you think these like are these Nephilim hosts groomed? Are they like sought after and then groomed and then like taken to Epstein's island and like baptized into the into the uh, Luciferian way? Is that how it, is that how it goes down?
0: I think yeah. I think a lot of them are groomed, um, and then I think you know obviously people can fall into that just by choices that they make as well.
1: But like curiosity, like like hey, come on out and we're doing this special Hollywood elite thing and you got to come and then they don't realize what they're getting themselves into. Cause that's, and then what's, cause everyone always thinks like, how are these narratives not known by the masses? I mean, how is this whole way to read the Bible swept under the rug? I mean, how do you even read the old Testament and have a degree in theology and know nothing of what we're talking about the last hour? And then not know about all these elites around the world who have these ties back to these secret societies. And I like how you you described it in one podcast I was listening to. You said it's a circle within a circle. So you have like a secret society. And most of those people don't know the inner circle. Right. It's just, it's just kind of a co- a cover or a caveat for for what's really going on, right? Well, like the Masons, right?
2: Yeah, like that. like at the top, at the top, it's Luciferian doctrine, but at the bottom, it's like, hey, it's a it's a boys' club. Everybody goes and
0: right, yeah. they have a
2: golf they have a golf tournament in the garage sale, right? And
0: right, we're yeah. doing humanitarian project, Right. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. That's the other symbol. There were two symbols throughout my investigation: red, and then this, what I call, well, not what I call. But the circumpunct, which is the circle within the circle, um, but so yeah, it kind of back to the red hair thing, just to close that loop. Um, you know, it it would be foolish on any of these physical traits to make a determination. You need a cluster of traits, just like it would be foolish for me to diagnose someone as schizophrenic with only one symptom. You have to have you know a, a grouping of symptoms to to have that. So then. If we think about the behavioral characteristics, I think this is where, as I read these, you'll really begin to kind of connect the dots with what you were just talking about, Nate, with um, you know, some of the stuff that happened on Epstein Island, um, you know, these Luciferian um, elites and their practices. Um, so let me run through these. Again, um, there's 19 behavioral characteristics. So lustfulness in conjunction with sexual misconduct, Deceitfulness as indicated by repeated lying and purposeful misrepresentation for personal profit and pleasure. Pervasive pattern of instability in relationships marked by control, manipulation, intimidation, and domination over others. Rebellious behavior and disregard for the rule of law. Haughty and prideful, as if above reproach. Vengeful or inappropriate, intense anger participation in sorcery, witchcraft, and or the occult, reoccurring violent acts displaying disregard for the rights of others, lack of remorse for heinous acts against other living beings, excessive focus on death-related topics and or symbolism, underlying dark personality that is masked by overinflated self-righteousness, dishonesty in trade and business transactions with a propensity toward corruption and now these last seven I'll read they're even more extreme and what I propose in my book is that if someone has just two of these in the last seven I'll read then they can be classified as a Nephilim host irregardless if they have any other traits. And so these are sexual perversion involving pedophilia, sexual domination of others against their will and or bestiality, trafficker of humans, engage in cannibalism, commit treasonous acts, pervasive pattern of engagement in sexual and or blood occult rituals, commit human sacrifices and the enslavement of others. And so those are um, the behavioral characteristics. And I'd have to say after um, my book got published, you know, I'm a researcher. So I, am continuing to research and, and looking in um, to transhumanism more, I actually would add a fifth physical trait and that would be um, someone with an altered genetic code. So um, back to your question of how do we, how do I connect the dots to the federal reserve? So Once I was able to identify these physical and behavioral characteristics that allowed me then to trace um, this agenda and and Nephilim host throughout history. You know, I mentioned just a few minutes ago about the transformation between Esau and Edom or to Edom, and that was huge um, in connecting the dots. So, um, the first, well, I want to pause because I want to keep going. If you had more questions or things you wanted to say about those behavioral characteristics,
1: no, I've heard we heard Richard kind of went into detail about that on the previous episode a couple ago. So I'd, I'd love to hear the Edom connection because we kind of ex- we explored some of that already.
0: I feel like one of the purposes I have right now and why I wrote this book and why I continue to write is um, really to expose the deeds of darkness and to bring those to light. Because um, m- my next book I just started is um, going to be called Generation Hoodwinked. And it's really looking at the mind control that the globalists use to enslave us. And so many of us just have no idea what's going on. It's like we're blind to it. Um, but yet, we're living under that enslavement. And so, yeah, it's just It's really important to understand that these aren't just, you know, stories about giants from old, that there's a wicked agenda attached to this and it's busy being rolled out right before us. And, you know, we can see it more and more, the more that we look and, you know, you turn on your television and you can begin to see it more and more if you know what you're looking for. So,
1: yeah. And I, well, I was going to say most people listening to this podcast, you know, you, you get a you get a feel for our audience and all these topics you know you can see they're kind of rebellious against the new world order they're talking about all the mandates and they're, they've come down since the the uh, virus and people are very aware listen to our show and it's funny how bigfoot can be a gateway drug to see the matrix that you're living in i think that's what you're talking about we're we're in this matrix yeah. and a show like ours you know you can't I, for, for me, I couldn't just hear stories of Bigfoot and be like, oh, yeah, there's nothing else going on in the world that's weird. You start to listen to other stories and other stories and other stories, and then you kind of find this narrative. And for me, it was like I found the giants. And I, I'm totally tracking with you that the giants are related to this new world order that's that's controlling things and pulling the strings. And some people think, oh, you're, it's, it's conspiracy theories. But no, it's just a willingness to see the truth. So – i I guess i want to
2: draw a line too real quick just for our listeners as well i mean it's no accident that we've talked about the demonic in in ways but it's really disembodied spirits of the giants right that's biblically what we're looking at so when we look at these things that that dr laura's talking about and we say those are kind of demonic traits that's not an accident it's not an accident this stuff came from if we're saying that what we consider to be demons are the disembodied spirits of the giants which were demonic and the stuff we consider to be, quote, demonic in, in these traits, whether it be pedophilia and human trafficking, cannibalism, all these really gross, disgusting, depraved things, the connection is a straight line. And and I think that's what you're spelling out here, which I think is, is super important because it connects the whole creature thing with today. And, you know, It's so continue. I just wanted to make that point.
0: Yeah, no, that's good. And... Nate, you mentioned, you know, we're living in the matrix. Um, Kiana Reeves said that the matrix was a documentary. Huh. And so that's really hmm. interesting considering. So, okay, back to Esau, the transformation from Esau to Edom. So if we think about um, the the connection, the symbolism of the color red, the first time in the Hebrew language that the color red was mentioned in scripture was in um, connection when Esau was born. And it's the Hebrew word Adamone or Adamoni. And it means red, uh, reddish of the hair complexion. And so um, there's a transformation, like I mentioned, that took place between Esau when he became Edom. And the, the Hebrew word for Edom is Adam. And one of the meanings is to be red. So when I thought about that, I'm like, what the heck does that mean, Lord? What, what does it mean to be red? And so I began looking at just the biblical meaning of the color red, you know, throughout scripture, what, what does red represent? And of course, we, we know that red represents the blood of Jesus. So that would be a, a positive connotation. But the preponderance of connection with the color red biblically um, is more of a negative connotation aligned with the seed of Satan. And so, like in Isaiah, um, red represents sin or the blood of evil deeds. In Revelation 6, it's chaos, death, and destruction. In Revelation 12, you know, it's Satan himself. And then also in Revelation 17, it's the beast, mystery Babylon, and martyrdom. So then when we think about Esau chose to be red, Um, this choice had substantial ramifications upon his generational line. You know, if we think about all that we've talked about today and that connection with the choices we make and how it impacts our future generations. So Esau branded himself red or Edom um, when he willingly traded his birthright for red lentil stew. Now Something much deeper was at play here than just he wanted some red stew. And um, what happened was Esau sealed a transaction and one that would constrict his allegiance to a particular seed. Because on that day, he aligned with the seed of Satan by rejecting the birthright blessing of Abraham and Isaac. So on that fateful day, he separated himself from Yahweh. And that's really important to understand. And then I began kind of looking at, okay, what's the, what was the personality of Esau? Again, to formulate those criteria for the Nephilim host. And, you know, we learned from scripture that he was um, a hunter, he was cunning, um, he was a man of the field. And again, kind of digging into the etymology of the words that, that Hebrew word for hunter is Sa'id, but it comes from a root word, sued, And what that means is to lie in wait, to chase and to take provision. And so, you know, we can kind of piece things together that Esau was this rugged outdoorsman. He was skilled at hunting. You know, he probably loved the thrill of the hunt where he stalked his prey and then moved in for the kill. But what's interesting is there's um, a figurative meaning of the word sued, and it's applied to um, someone who lies in wait to catch a human. So I think about human trafficking, um, but it, it also is someone who will entrap another person for the purpose to exploit them for their own personal gain. Now, I don't have a ton of time to go into the Federal Reserve, but therein explains <laughs> the Federal Reserve where it's really a debt enslavement system that we've been trapped by, and it exploits us for the personal gain of the what I call the elite banksters. Um, but you can read about that in my book if you want. Um, yeah. So as we think about like, so the meaning of, of these things to describe Esau's personality, but then we consider extra biblical texts like the book of Joshua and in chapter 27, it actually goes into detail about the hunting expedition that Esau was on prior to that exchange of his birthright. So at the time Esau and Nimrod were both known as incredible hunters And the book of Joshua records that um, Esau was, you know, stalking Nimrod. So Nimrod and his men were out in the fields. They were hunting. Esau was hidden. And when Nimrod came close enough, he jumped out from being concealed, took his sword and cut the head of Nimrod off and he killed two of his men. And so Esau was on the run from the rest of Nimrod's men. And so that is the backdrop to the story when he runs into the tent, weak and famished and weary, faint, um, because he's on the run from Nimrod's men. And that's when he finds uh, Jacob making the red lentil stew. And so Another little interesting tidbit is red lentil stew traditionally was the meal that the firstborn son would prepare for the grieving parent. And so here we have Isaac grieving the loss of Abraham. And instead of Esau being the firstborn, caring for his father by preparing this meal, he's off in the field killing things. Hmm. And so that's the backdrop to how Esau transformed to become Edom, because Esau chose to be red by covering his hands with the murderous blood of Nimrod instead of fulfilling his role as a loving firstborn son. It's
2: hmm. hmm. crazy.
1: It's heavy. It
2: is. <laughs> it's heavy there.
1: Yeah. And 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 my last question for you is, do you know, so many people on our show talk about these extra biblical books. Is 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 the Vatican and some of these top dogs who are involved with this enslavement system were they instrumental in removing some of the material that gave context to how we to keep this story confusing?
0: I'll, I'll offer my opinion because that is something I'm definitely going to research for this next book I'm writing. Um, my hunch is yes. Uh, that these extra biblical texts, because, you know, we know the book of Enoch, um, some of the New Testament writers um, reference it, and some of these other extra biblical texts are referenced in scripture. And so, um, you know, they thought highly of it enough to, to incorporate it in their writing. So, I haven't done a ton of research on it, but my hunch is that this is part of potentially some of the mind control is to separate us from the full scriptures that give us the full context and that may have been done by design so that we don't understand um, the Nephilim and the Nephilim agenda, but that is that is my opinion at this point. And like I said, I'm going to be doing a lot more research on that.
2: Yeah, I say I say it's interesting too that Enoch, in the beginning, talks about it, it is is set aside for a time. That like in it seems like the world's waking up. Uh, Dr. Laura Sanger, thanks for coming on. I know your time here is is uh, we're coming to the end, but uh, would love for you to share with our listeners where they can find your work, find out what you're doing. They could connect with, with the research and, and the things you're putting out. Um, so a little plug for wherever you'd like to send people um, to listen to the show.
0: Probably the best way to connect with me is on my website, which is no longer enslaved.com. Um, if you're interested in my book, you can purchase it from there or directly from Amazon or Barnes and Noble, but also I've written a ton of articles, uh, particularly on COVID-19, the vaccine, uh, different things like that. Um, And I I write them in such a way that people who aren't awake to the agenda behind it can read it and begin to ask questions and maybe wonder why. So it's kind of an intro into understanding the backdrop of all that I've talked about today without putting any of that in those articles. So it's a way to kind of waken people up. Those are all on my website as well, as, as well as previous interviews I've done. Those are in the video section.
2: Awesome. Awesome. So you you say those articles are like the Bigfoot, the the gateway, the
0: gateway. Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, I love it. You, you know, it, it's hard for some people. They they need to be taken along the way. And I like how you described in the in the beginning of the episode of how when you were writing your book, it's like every day was a little bit more that you could handle to the next day to the next day as this information kept coming at you. And that's kind of what we're trying to do on our show. And that's the same thing that happened to me in, in a completely different realm of, of stuff that I was listening to. It was like a podcast that started another podcast. And then you just you can get a little bit more and it gets a little bit stranger and you can handle that strangeness as you progress and open your mind to, Hey, you know, I've got to relearn everything here. And, and so we appreciate you coming on and dropping some hard truths. I know that a lot of people will freak out about some of these topics, you know, the new world order. And I think it's just a bunch of conspiracy theories, but the story goes all the way back to the days of Noah and Jesus talks about the days of Noah uh, in Matthew 23. And so wh- whatever was going on then is still around and people still see these creatures and it all makes sense in one story. And that's kind of what we're on the journey of. Creatures is our gateway to get, to get weird and get people's minds to open up. So thank you for thank you. giving us a... Because uh, what we're trying to figure out is how these giants relate to these creatures and this story is just... It's so much bigger than we anticipated and more fascinating. And there's so many ways you can go with it. So hopefully this fits into our creatures category for listeners. But I sure think it does. does. Yeah. I think it does.
2: I'd love to have you back. We I thought like we just just scraped some of the surface yeah. and so
0: I'd love uh, to come back. Yeah. It was great to talk with you guys. I love the way you think and the questions you ask. I mean it it helps us further our understanding that's what we need to do in this time
1: appreciate that yeah we're we feel like two dummies just trying to make sense of of what's going on out there <laughs> but you know you listened to the bigfoot podcast and it was driving me nuts i'm like what what are these things and how does it make sense to the biblical story which i believe is true but they don't do they talk about this stuff and what do you know like it just gets weird so we appreciate the the uh, nice words and I love, I, it, and it's just amazing how it fits into what, because we just had Doug Van Dorn talking about conspiracies this week, so we just talked about that, and then Richard Sorensen talked about the psychosis of the giants, and we're talking, so it's like everyone comes on this show, and it's like, and I don't, you know, we can't. And we
2: had a mason on.
1: We did have a mason on.
2: <laughs> this just doesn't get, it <laughs> gets weird.
1: Yeah, we didn't even know he was a mason no, we he started didn't. And he yeah. launched into it we're like, okay, alright, so here we go uh, yeah. But It seems like Blurry Creatures is telling its own story And we're just kind of in the driver's seat Going 100 miles an hour We don't even know where we're going, but we're going So we appreciate you uh, we, we appreciate you taking over the wheel And driving us around today Because there's a lot we got to get to that island, Luke Man, which, that seems Which one? With all oh. the giants on it
2: Sardinia? Oh, no. <laughs> oh Solomon, the Solomon Islands I know you missed a few islands. I thought I know you weren't talking about Epstein's island because that would start. would have been really strange. No, 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 not that island. Yeah, but Solomon Island. Yeah, the Solomon Islands and Sardinia. We got places to go, Nathan. I,
1: I can't believe I haven't heard of that island, man.
2: We got to talk about that. That seems fascinating.
1: Well, thank you so much for coming on again, and we'll let you know if you if you when your next book comes out for sure, we'll have you back. Um, but if you find anything and you think it, f- it fits into our wheelhouse, send us an email and we'll 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 do it.
0: Sounds great. Thank you, Laura. All right. Take care, guys.